March Madness just ended. This is a bracket. Everybody does brackets, I guess. I don't know. We're from Kentucky. Everybody does brackets in Kentucky. And so one of the things I like about March Madness is uh, it's three weekends, kind of three weeks of basketball, and, and it goes from 68 teams down to the national championship, and that was last Monday, and who cares who won because it wasn't Kentucky. I was like, I, don't, I didn't even watch the Final Four. But um, my family competes in a bracket challenge every year. So my four daughters, my wife, my mother, my two sons-in-law, and me. There are nine of us, and we sort of make predictions as to who we think is going to win. I usually am at the top. I'm something of a basketball savant. Uh, and so, you know, you can kind of predict I was going to be way at the top. This year, out of nine, I was seventh. My 89-year-old mother came in first. But predicting is difficult. And so, uh, by the way, UConn won, uh, University of Connecticut won. 2.08% uh, of the brackets picked UConn to win. 0.4% uh, of the brackets picked the Final Four. It was a little bit weird this year. A lot of teams got in that nobody expected to get in. Uh, making predictions is hard. In fact, there are some examples of really bad predictions uh, throughout the history of the, of the world. Um, the guy that was the uh, headmaster of the school where Einstein was a student when he was young told Einstein's dad, I don't think he's ever going to amount to anything. I mean, you talk about a really bad prediction. That was a really bad prediction. The guy that was at Decca Records when he first heard the Beatles, his quote was, um, the Beatles have no future in show business. Well, maybe that guy had no future in show business. Um, Steve Ballmer, who was the Microsoft chair in 2007, he said, there's no chance the iPhone will ever get any significant market share. So there's a lot of people that make bad predictions, but some people make really, really good predictions. Uh, Nikola Tesla in 1909 predicted that we would be having phones in our pockets. In 1909, he predicted that, which is really, a, it's kind of incredible. Uh, da Vinci predicted things like uh, the submarine and tanks and parachutes. And he lived in the late 1400s, early 1500s. I mean, that's, that's hundreds of years beforehand. And then in 1984, in a cinematic masterpiece called the Terminator, the Terminator predicted, I'll be back. And he was. And in AD 30, the spring of AD 30, Jesus sort of said the exact same thing. He said, uh, when the disciples came to uh, this town, this region called Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, again, it's kind of this odd thing that Jesus did. We don't do that. We don't call ourselves titles. Jesus sort of adapts this or adopts this title, the Son of Man. It's found in Daniel 7. It's sort of a, a prophecy of the Messiah. And so when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm both human, but I'm also divine. I'm, I'm God and man. And so he said, the Son of Man about himself is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him. And on the third day, I'll be back. Basically what he says. Now, Jesus makes this claim often. He doesn't make it once. He makes it several times. Here's another um, sort of example I lay down my life only to take it up again, he said. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. 
And over and over and over, Jesus predicts that he's going to come back. So we're in this series called Investigating Jesus, and we're looking at evidence around certain things that he said or claimed or projected. This is stuff that's going to happen. Now, um, have you ever noticed how many television shows uh, have, uh, like, investigation as part of their theme? Uh, CSI, I'm trying to think of CSI, help me. What else? NCIS, Cold Case, are you all awake? Law and Order, um, Scorpion, Numbers, Bones. The ID channel has wall-to-wall investigations. It's always investigations. My favorite one is See No Evil. That's my favorite show on the ID channel because it is the show about um, these guys are investigating, or, or people, not just guys, uh, are investigating these crimes, and they go to storefronts, and they try to secure video evidence. Like if you go to Walmart, every Walmart has surveillance cameras. Uh, 7-Eleven or, or Spinks or whatever, they have surveillance cameras. And lots of people have them. I, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a heads up. As your pastor, if you kill somebody, don't go to Walmart. Uh, I'm going I'm to give you that just right off. Because they're going to find you. Because this show is all about, they use this technology to figure out. It's like Jason Bourne. They figure out where he was and what he was doing. And they solve these crimes using video. And I think we like these crime shows. And there are tons of them. In fact, this morning I was looking it up. And, and there was a website, the 200 best inve- investigative shows. The 200, 200 best which means there are at least 200, and maybe some that aren't any good, but they didn't make the list. We sort of like these investigations because innately we want there to be this justice. We want justice to prevail. We know bad things happen, but we want the bad guys to get caught. And so we want justice to prevail. We want the truth to come out. And so today, you and I, in the next about 30 minutes, we're going to investigate a cold case of a missing body that's been missing for 2,000 years. And we're going to kind of try to figure out, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because there's evidence around this, and so we're going to kind of be forensic scientists today, and we're going to look at if Jesus really died. The Discovery Channel back in 2007 had a show uh, it was the, the producer was a guy named James Cameron. You might know him from Avatar. I think he was also uh, produced the movie Titanic. And so uh, in Jerusalem, about that time, early 2000s, they found uh, south of Jerusalem these, um, they're called ossuaries. They're boxes with bones in them. And so this is what would happen. If you, in that era, if you were to die, they would put you in a tomb And then when your body decayed and was no more, they would collect your bones and put them in a box so that they could use that tomb for other things. So early 2000s, they found some boxes, some ossuaries, south of Jerusalem. One said Jesus, one said Mary, one said Judas, son of of Jesus. So there were these three boxes. And so they made this show. The show's title was The Lost Tomb of Jesus. And they uh, assumed, or presumed, if you will, uh, that those were the, well, that was actually Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and they got married, and they had a son named Judas. And they, the whole show was around 
that premise that, hey, Jesus really didn't die, because people have said that for over 2,000 years. He really didn't die. And so the guy that found the bones, it's a, a dude by the name of um, Amos Cloner, said, this is the most ridiculous show I've ever seen. Because he said, look, there are lots of people named Jesus in Jesus' time. In fact, it was the third most popular boy name in Israel. Mary was the most popular uh, female name in Israel. And he said it would be like finding a grave that's kind of old, and it says George and Martha here in the United States, and assuming that's George and Martha Washington. And he said the most ridiculous thing is, if Jesus actually had a son, what are the odds he would name him Judas? It would be like somebody who lived through the Holocaust naming their kid Adolf Hitler Goldberg. I mean, it's like, it's just not going to happen. But people have tried to disprove Jesus for, for a long time. It, it's just kind of over and over. Now, here's the problem. If Jesus didn't really rise, then we've got some issues as followers of Christ. In fact, there's a guy named uh, David Dykes who was a, was a pastor in Texas, and he, and he put it so wonderfully. He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, founder is fake, our faith is foolish, our funerals are final. It's a great way to put it. Our founder is a fake because he said he was going to come back again, and evidently he didn't if his bones were still there. In fact, Paul, who's this great follower of Jesus, maybe put it more succinctly. <coughs> if Jesus has not been raised then your faith is a delusion and you are still lost in your sins. We are in big trouble if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So, let's look at the evidence. I mean, I think you and I, we're smart enough uh, to figure out, okay, we can look at things and figure out if the evidence proves or disproves if Jesus rose from the dead. So let's look at a, a couple of things. First, let's look at the evidence of prophecy. In the Old Testament, if you read... All right, I'm going to be real uh, honest with you here. Um, some of the prophecies of the Old Testament, I read them and I go, well, okay. I mean, I can see how that might apply to Jesus, but maybe not. But look, there are some very clear prophecies about Jesus. Let me give you just a couple. Uh, in, in Micah, it says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah... Isaiah says the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Jeremiah, um, he says that Messiah, the Messiah will be a descendant of David. In Hosea, it says that the Messiah would flee uh, to Egypt with his family. That's really specific. In Zechariah, it says that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Super specific. Um, in Isaiah, again, it says that he would not speak in his defense at the trial. And then David, who, I want to show you this text. It is amazing to me. David predicts crucifixion for the Messiah. He says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. My enemies stare at me and glare. David wrote this, generally speaking, about 1000 B.C. Crucifixion was invented about uh, 500 B.C. So David predicts this 500 years before cruci crucifixion was even invented. And then he says this, crazy specific. They divided my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. He writes this in 1000 B.C. And we know that uh, the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross and they divided his clothes and threw dice to decide 
who would get each piece. It is remarkable. I've given you eight very specific prophecies. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. I mean, those are very specific. His family would go to Egypt. He would be, his hands and his feet would be pierced. I mean, these are really specific. I've just given you eight. Mathematically, for one person to fulfill eight prophecies like that is one in this number. That's 28 zeros. It, it is so astronomical that it is beyond belief. Jesus, the evidence of prophecy, is that Jesus was at least the Messiah. So let's stipulate, if we will, that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's go to the next thing, the evidence of his death. Now, there's this theory out there, and it's kind of that show, the, the show on the Discovery Channel. It's called the swoon theory. Have you ever swooned? When you get older, you swoon. So, like, if you get up too fast, you kind of you swoon a little bit. So the idea is that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, but rather he, um, he suffered, they put him in a cool tomb, and when he get out, got in the cool tomb, he resuscitated. Or maybe he took some kind of something that made him look dead. I know that can happen. It happened on Gilligan's Island that one time. So uh, I know it can happen. And, and so the idea is that Jesus, as, uh, as Miracle Max from Princess Brides would say, he's only mostly dead. You know, he kind of almost died. But then he got, in the, he got in the tomb and he was uh, resuscitated. He really didn't die. And that's kind of the notion around this idea. Well, Jesus didn't really die. This is the swoon theory. And there are different variations of it, but it's kind of, they all kind of say the same thing. Now, for that to be true, it would have to be plausible that the Romans who were experts in execution somehow missed it with Jesus, a high-profile high criminal to them who had this huge trial. Everybody's watching. Somehow, with everybody watching, the Romans somehow, who were experts in execution, missed it. Now, I don't know, do you ever watch those action movies like the Bond movies or uh, Taken or whatever? And, and so they always make this critical mistake. The, the villains, they will, they'll capture the, the, the hero, and then they'll tie him up or tie her up, and then they'll leave them for later. They're going to wipe them out later. And say it with me. What happens every time they leave them for later? They always escape. They're really, really bad at this. These are the worst villains ever. You want to know how you keep the, uh, the hero from escaping? You wipe them out immediately. I mean, that's like, have they not ever watched these movies? I guess they haven't. Well, so the idea is that somehow Jesus, he, he swooned, and they thought he was dead, and these Romans who were experts at execution, well, they, they just missed it. Now, here's what's really interesting about the Romans in execution. In America, we have a few ways to execute people. Gas chamber, uh, electric chair, lethal injection, those are the three most, we, most of the time that happens. I think it's still legal to do firing squad and hanging, but nobody ever does that. So really we have kind of three methods. The Romans, and, and by the way, uh, in America, you, you execute criminals as humanely as possible. I mean, you know, they're, you're killing them, so it's how humane is it? But still, uh, they don't, the idea is we don't want them to suffer. In the Roman mind, when they executed people, they wanted you to suffer. 
In fact, they wanted everybody to see you suffer. Because for them, execution was a means to prevent an uprising. It's a different world. So the Romans would go and they would conquer places. And when they conquered a place, the people that they conquered, they didn't want them to rebel, to rise up. And so they would have these public executions. Anybody that did something against Rome, they would execute them publicly and slowly, just so everybody would know. In fact, oftentimes the Romans would leave a body on a cross for days, months. They would want you to walk down the street. It was always publicly displayed. They would, you'd walk down the street and there would be crosses with bones on them. And it was a constant reminder, I better not mess with Rome. It's what they did. It's who they were. They were using this as a deterrent. They were experts. It always started with flogging. We read this about Jesus. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And flogging was often, was always brutal, was sometimes uh, terminal. Lethal. Uh, the flogging, these strong, able bodied men, they didn't have Pee Wee Herman, you know, flogging people. It would be big guys, you know, uh, who had big muscles, and, and they would tie a person to a post, and they would take this whip, and this whip was incredibly destructive. And it would have nine ends, so, it, you know, like a, a bullwhip has like one, one end, but these would have nine ends, and sometimes it's called the cat of nine tails. It's also called the scorpion, and they, th these whips were designed to inflict great physical damage. Uh, in fact, oftentimes a person never even survived the flogging. The flogging was so brutal that it would just take the life out of a person. It's no wonder that the Scripture tells us that Jesus wasn't even physically able to carry his own cross after the flogging because it's so brutal. And there would be such a loss of blood, and if you didn't uh, kind of rehydrate, then you would, um, you would weaken. I mean, the Romans were, were really good at this. And then if the flogging wasn't enough, then if you actually made it to the crucifixion, they would put you on a cross, and they would have these seven-inch spikes, and they would drive them not through your hand, but through the wrist. There are two bones in the wrist, and so they would drive them through here. You have a tendon there, and it would sever that tendon, and the feeling in your hands would go away. And then they would drive one of those spikes through your feet, doubled over, and they would hang you on a cross, and they would put you in the air. Now, crucifixion is, is just, it is such a, a wicked means of, of killing someone. Because you're on the cross, and, and the issue isn't so much that uh, they hang you in such a way that, that you kind of stoop. And so you can get breath in, but you can't get breath out. And so in order to get breath out, now again, you, you've been beaten to uh, nearly extinction, but you're on this cross and your back is bloodied and you're trying to raise up just to exhale. And you can do that for a while. I mean, I can imagine a person doing that for a while. It depends on your state. 
But if you've been beaten severely with the flogging, then it would be incredibly difficult. And so basically you, you died of asphyxiation. You just couldn't breathe anymore or you couldn't exhale anymore. And so to hasten death, the Romans knew what to do, and sometimes they wanted someone to die quickly, and so often not, but occasionally they would. And what they would do is they would break your legs so that you couldn't rise up anymore. They actually did that when Jesus was executed, not to Jesus, but to the two folks on either side. And it's this this idea that somehow Jesus lived through the crucifixion, Even if he did, think about what shape he would be in. And then there's this. The soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. This is called making sure. Well, he looks dead, but let's make sure he's dead. And so they pierce under his ribcage into his heart just to make certain. Experts in execution don't make mistakes like this, like not piercing. I mean, this is an example of they don't make mistakes. When they set out to kill a person, they kill a person. That's just how it works. And if Jesus had survived, he wouldn't have been a Messiah. He'd have been a mess. Can you imagine Jesus walking out of the grave after all that? He just swooned somehow, and he resuscitated. Well, he certainly wouldn't be someone that you would be in awe of. It would be just the opposite. He wouldn't have been a Messiah. He would have been a mess. There's also more proof, the proof of the empty tomb. This is kind of, there are two things for me, and I'm a thinker. I like to think through this stuff. What's the proof for me? Now, I, I believe... Jesus fulfills this prophecy. I really do believe that. And I really do believe that he was crucified. But crucifixion, dying, doesn't mean you rose again. I mean, you can die and never rise again. People do it all the time. So what is the proof that Jesus rose from the dead? Because here's the truth of the matter. When you die, people typically who are dead don't come back. Do you remember this character from Sesame Street? In the early years, this guy's name is Mr. Hooper, and he was on for about 13 seasons. And he was, you know, you have the Muppets, and then you have people, and he was one of the people. And after about 13 seasons, he had a heart attack and he died. And now the people, the producers of Sesame Street, have to figure out how are we going to tell 10 million kids that Mr. Hooper is dead? It's hard to tell kids about death, it's really difficult. And so they came up with this plan. And the next season begins, and Mr. Hooper isn't there, and Big Bird comes in with some pictures. And he says, I can't wait to show these to Mr. Hooper. And then some other person says, well, Mr. Hooper, remember we told you Mr. Hooper died. And Big Bird says, oh yeah, I'll wait till he comes back. And they say to Big Bird, well, Mr. Hooper isn't coming back. And he says, why not? And then this is the tag. Big Bird, you need to know when people die, they don't come back. And typically that's true. When people die, you don't come back. Except for Jesus. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Super interesting. 
if you're going to make something up about Jesus' resurrection, you certainly wouldn't do it having women who in that era had very little status. In fact, they couldn't even give testimony in a court of law. So if, you were, if you're doing this to prove to somebody, uh, to make it up, to, to, to just sort of speculate, then you certainly wouldn't have women being the first to find the tomb empty. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. People typically don't just disappear, except in this case. Now, there's another idea. It's called the wrong thing wrong tomb theory, and that is, oh, all right, so the women went to the wrong tomb. Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, directionally challenged. Maybe these women were directionally challenged. Maybe they, maybe they went to the wrong place. It's unlikely, but maybe they did. So if they went to the wrong tomb, and your people, and you want to prove Jesus is, is still dead, then don't you just say, oh, no, the right tomb is right there. I mean, it's kind of easy to prove that Jesus was still in the grave if he was still in the grave. What's super interesting to me about this is even his opponents kind of concur that there's, the tomb is empty. Look, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Uh, we, woke up, we, we woke up and there's no body. And when the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. And they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. And they said, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole them away while we were asleep. Now, this is actionable. If you are a Roman guard, the one thing you don't want to do is lose a dead body. I mean, how hard is it to guard a dead body? I mean, I can understand if you're guarding a live body, you might get away. But this is a dead dude. He should have been easy to keep up with. So he's gone. He gone. And uh, they don't know where. And so they go and they report and... The chief priests, they were so smart. They said, okay, okay, we're going to give you cover. We're going to give you a cover story. This is what you say. While we were asleep, the disciples came and stole his body. By the way, if you're asleep, how do you know who stole the body? It, it, how would you know? The other thing is they gave him a large sum of money because they wanted to make sure they kept the story straight. If they could pro have produced a body, don't you think they would have? I mean, it just makes sense. If Jesus is still dead, they would have said, He's right here. They had no reason not to. In fact, they had every reason to. Here He is. He's right here. He's easy to spot. I read an article a couple years ago about, the title was, Body of Syracuse Woman Found After 14 Years. This, guy's name, this girl's name was Margaret Rome, and she had a boyfriend. His name was Geddes, I think. Um, George Geddes. All right, so Miss Rome, she, she turns up missing. About a month later, her parents report her missing. That didn't help. Uh, you know, it took them a month to report it. So they couldn't find her. So they suspect Mr. Geddes, but they don't have any evidence. They can't find any, you know, a crime scene or anything. And so the, the case goes cold. Can't find the body, the case goes cold. And so 14 years later... They find her body in a U-Haul storage unit rented by, guess who? George Geddes. He rented the storage unit under his own name where he stashed the body of the girlfriend he killed. I'd like, you, I'd like to read what the, uh, the attorney general said 
district attorney said. Luckily, people like this keep us in business, is what he said. Dead bodies are difficult to get rid of. It's hard to get rid of a dead body. And yet there was an empty tomb and there was nobody, and that is some evidence. Now look at this. The evidence of eyewitness testimony. For me, this clinches it. And I'll I'll tell you why in just a second. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, as the Scripture said he was going to be. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve apostles. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. And then he was seen by James, and later by the apostles. And last of all, I, Paul, saw him too, long after the others. Jesus rose from the grave, 40 days he's on the earth, he makes appearances to lots of different people. Now, the argument against this is, well, it was hallucinations. But if 515 people have the same hallucination, that's a pretty big miracle, too. That'd be a miracle almost as big as the resurrection. I mean, how likely is that? You just have to kind of think through the plausibility of these things. Could that really have happened? Well, probably not. But here's the two things about this that really kind of stick out for me. Jesus showed up to people who didn't believe in him. One of them was James, his brother. <laughs> and I can understand a brother not believing his, his brother is the Messiah, but there's Jesus. And, and so now you have Jesus showing up to James, who becomes this great leader in the church, but at the time didn't even believe in him. And Paul, he, not only did he not believe in Jesus, he was persecuting Christians. Jesus showed up to people who <laughs> didn't even believe. But the clincher for me is this. His disciples were never the same after that. Look at what it says about him. On the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples are together with the doors locked because they're scared out of their minds. If they'll crucify Jesus, they'll crucify us. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Here's what I know about human nature. People will die for something they believe in, but rarely will a person die for something they don't believe in. I'll give you a couple examples. There were terrorists who hijacked planes, who flew them into the Twin Towers several years ago. They believed they were going to get a reward, uh, rivers of honey, 72 virgins, and a place in heaven. This is what they were promised. They believed that Allah would give that to them. They weren't correct, but they believed. But who's going to take a fall for something they know is false? Some of you might know the name Chuck Colson. He was part of the Watergate investigation. Colson was... um, one of Nixon's chief allies. He's one of the kind of the 12 inner circle. Uh, He got convicted and sent to prison, and while he was in prison, he became a follower of Jesus. And for him, he said, I believe in in the resurrection. This is what he says. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me, which is interesting. He said, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. How plausible is it that the apostles kept alive for 40 years? 
History tells us that of the 12 apostles, uh, 11 of them died brutally. Peter was hung upside down. Some of them were stoned to death. One of them was dragged through the streets with a horse. And if you didn't, if you knew uh, what you believed was a lie, you wouldn't do that. For me, the most compelling evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is that people were willing to die because they had seen it. They'd seen him. And they believed because they'd seen him. Now, sometimes you don't have enough information. You don't know how to make a decision. I don't think today's the case. But let me tell you a story. There's a guy named Joseph, and he's in a college class on ornithology. Does all, anybody know what that is? Study of birds. Yeah, study of birds. Now, his professor is noted to be really, really tough. And so he's taking copious notes, and he's studying the book, and the final uh, is happening, and he, he stays up all night to study for the final. And the next day, he shows up in a room full of students. And on stage, where the professor lectures, there's a table. And on the table are 10 cages. And you see there are 10 birds in those cages, but you can't tell what kind of birds because it's covered up except for their legs. All you can see are the birds' legs. And the professor says, okay, here's the exam. I want you to number your paper 1 to 10, and I want you to tell me everything you can about these birds. Identify them by looking at their legs. And Joseph is like, are you kidding me? I mean, I know the notes, and I've studied the stuff, but this is like, he, he can't believe that this is the test. And the more he looks at it, and the more he looks at the cages, they all look the same to him. He is fuming and eventually, he just kind of loses his mind. He hadn't had sleep. You know how this happens. And so he crumples his paper up, his exam paper. He walks forward where the professor is. He throws it into the trash can. He says, this is the most stupid test I've ever heard of. And you have to be the worst professor in the history of the world. And there's dead silence in the room. And he starts to walk out. Well, now the professor is shaken a bit, but eventually he gathers himself and he says, Young man, I demand to know your name. And the boy lifts up his pant legs and he says, You tell me. <laughs> sometimes, that's funny, uh, sometimes you don't have enough information, but today we've looked at all the information. There's lots of it. We, we looked at prophecy. One in 10 to the 28th power that Jesus would fulfill eight of the prophecies, and there, were, there are literally scores of prophecies that Jesus fulfills. We just looked at eight. We looked at his death. I think it's pretty easy to realize he died. Romans, they are good at that. They were really good at that. He certainly died. And then there were excuses around his resurrection, but... The women found the tomb empty. It was one of those things where we saw the evidence of the empty tomb. We saw the evidence of eyewitnesses, over 500 of them. But for me, the most compelling part was the changed lives. There were people willing to die. Think about Paul. Paul is this guy, if you read about his life, he is a dude... Not only he's a he's Jewish, he doesn't even like Jesus, and Jesus appears to him, and he is transformed. And not only does he become a follower of Jesus, he becomes a the planter of churches and the writer of scripture. 
And at the end of his life, he has opportunities to, to meet with important people. And all he has to say is, I don't really believe all that. It's kind of just, I just make some of that up. He had opportunity to get off easy if he wanted to. This is the guy who said, For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. The very best thing that can ever happen to me would be for me to go be with Jesus. You don't say that if you know it's not true. So you've looked at the evidence today. I'm going to let Jesus ask the last question. In John 11, it says, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. And all those who live and believe in me will never die. And then he asks the question that you have to ask yourself. You're kind of the jury of one today. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, on this Easter morning, we recognize that Christ died for our sins, but more importantly, rose again to give us hope. We all have people in our lives who pass away. Without the resurrection, we would be people who have no hope. But because of the resurrection... We walk in hope and faith and joy and we face difficult times because we know this isn't all there is. And like Paul once said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, may that be our mantra this week that we know with certainty that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy, that He died on a cross to take away our sins. Three days later, he rose again, and that he lives today sitting at the right hand of God. The Bible tells us interceding for us. Thank you for that sacrifice, and thank you for Jesus. We pray it in his special, precious name. Amen.